Every year, the uh, Gallup organization conducts a poll in which they ask re- uh, people to respond to the questions about ethics and honesty in different professions, and they're trying to determine what the American people think are the most ethical and honest professions. And uh, they did that again this year, and I think it was for about the 10th straight year. What would you guess came out on top? Any, any guesses? Nursing. Okay, nurses came out right on top, and they were followed very closely by uh, grade school teachers and uh, pharmacists. I heard a woohoo, I think we've got some grade school teachers here. Uh, pharmacists, and then there were four other professions that were rated uh, 50% or better in terms of being uh, viewed positively, and I am happy to say that clergy did make that uh, top <laughs> section. Uh, we weren't as high as nurses, grade school teachers, or pharmacists, but we were there, and so I'm grateful for You know, we should have been higher, but that just goes to show we are uh, not any better than anybody else. How about the bottom? What would you put at the bottom? <laughs> too many, too many. Okay. You want to, <laughs> there are a lot if people voted for that. Political lobbyists at the bottom, okay? Followed very closely by car salesmen, and then... Politicians, right. Politicians. Actually, uh, advertising practitioners got in there, and then it came members of Congress. And as you work your way, as you... (laughs) Hey, I'm just reporting the facts here, okay? You know, as you work your way up the list, it was really interesting to see as you're working your way from the bottom up, and they were pretty closely clustered at the bottom there. Um, You know, you've got your members of Congress, then you've got your state officials, and then the local officials are above that. And I guess it's one of, you know, what they say, all politics is local. So that's how it was. The, uh, the, The woman's profession, Rahab's profession, is one that actually didn't even make the list. And uh, when we get to that, you'll understand why. I think that if her profession were on the list, then um, I don't think people would have taken the poll too terribly seriously. So uh, we'll find out about that in just a minute. But if you have not been with us for the past few weeks, let me just kind of bring you up to speed as to where we are. We are actually nearing the end of a series that we're calling Heroes of Faith. And we're looking at the lives of different uh, women and men in the Bible uh, who are held up really in the Bible as examples of heroes, as, as people who we ought to look to and say, yeah, That's somebody who I want to emulate uh, because of their faith in God, because they were a follower of God. And the first week, we we looked at Hannah, who was a a mother, and uh, Hannah had a very, very deep faith in God, prayed long and hard that God would give her a son. Uh, God did do that, and then she was willing to give that son back to God uh, and took him to the temple, to the priest there, and he became Samuel, who was a prophet and a follower of God as well. And he was actually the second hero that we looked at. And uh, Samuel being a prophet, his faith, his heroic faith, he was willing to stand before Saul, the king, and tell Saul uh, that Saul had been disobeying God. And that took a lot of faith because Saul could have had him killed immediately. So we looked at the life of Samuel there. Third week, we looked at Moses, who was a great leader, led the people out of Egypt. And then finally, last week, we looked at Gideon, a man who prayed even when he had doubts, even when he had questions. But then as God answered his prayer, then in faith, he trusted God and uh, led, led the people of Israel there. And so this week, we come to Rahab. And so, you know, you've got a mother, you've got a great leader in Moses, you've got a prophet, you've got a judge, and this week we have a prostitute. And, uh, you know, what in the world are we doing with a prostitute on our list of heroes of faith? 
a couple of people actually asked me over the last couple of weeks, did Rich stick you with Rahab here? You know, he's going off on vacation and you got stuck with Rahab. No, actually, I chose to speak about Rahab because as I thought about the life of Rahab, I said, you know what? It illustrates something about God that I just, I just find incredible and, and really encouraging in my relationship with God as I see Rahab's relationship with God and the faith that she had in God and how God responds to her and how God treats her, I find it personally encouraging in terms of my life as well. And so I wanted to share that with you guys this morning. So we're going to take a look at Rahab in, uh, in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to kind of give you some background that, uh, that we need in order to understand the story of Rahab. So 1440 B.C., about 1,400 years uh, before Jesus was born, a guy named Moses, we talked about him a couple of weeks ago, led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Okay, so they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Moses led them out. He takes them across the Red Sea, through the desert, and they end up uh, at the edge of uh, what was known then as Canaan. And that was the land that God had promised actually to Abraham many years before and to, to others, other followers of God at that time, promised them that they were going to give them that land. We know that today as the land of Israel or Palestine, depending on how you want to look at it. And that was the land that God had promised. So he led them right up to the edge of that land and they sent out spies. They sent 12 spies out into the land, looked at the land. The spies came back and said, it's a really great land, man. We ought to have it. But you know what? People are pretty big, pretty scary. I don't think we can do it. And so they backed off and they decided, no, we're not going to do that. And God was pretty upset because basically they refused to trust him. They didn't have faith that God was able to help them to conquer the land. And so he had them wander around the desert for about 40 years until uh, pretty much everybody who had been alive at that time, all the adults at least, had died off. And so then 40 years later, they came back to the edge of Canaan. This time they're actually a little bit further north. They're standing on the edge of the Jordan River and Joshua is now the leader. Moses had been the leader. Moses had passed away. A guy named Joshua was the leader. And what's interesting is Joshua was one of the 12 spies who had gone up the first time to check out the land. And he was one of only two of those 12 who came back and said, yeah, they're big, they're tough, but we can take them because God is on our side. So as a result of Joshua's faith, God said, okay, Joshua, you're going to be the guy that's going to lead Israel into the promised land. You're going to lead them into the land that I have, have set aside for you. And so that's where we're going to pick up our story in Joshua chapter 2. So Joshua writes, Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, Scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. Problem number one. What are two good Jewish boys doing staying at the house of a prostitute. The Bible deals with messes and messy people. The Bible itself is not a messy book. And I don't, when I say messy, I don't mean sort of like, you know, my office or something like that. What I mean, it's the lives, as Steve was saying earlier, of real people. Rahab is a real person. She's a real prostitute. These two real guys went and stayed at her house. What in the world is going on with this? 
I was reading uh, these past couple weeks a whole bunch of different people writing about Rahab and the spies, what's going on. I'm reading some who are, are followers of Christ who are writing from you know, a Christian perspective. Actually, I was reading what uh, some of the, the Jewish folks say as well about this because this was in, in, you know, in the Hebrew and the Jewish scriptures. And a number of them actually uh, make the claim that she wasn't a prostitute but that she was an innkeeper you know, and that the, word ought to, you know, the Hebrew and Greek words ought to be translated uh, you know, innkeeper rather than prostitute. Little problem with that. The, the Hebrew word's a little bit more complicated to explain, but the Greek word, which is used, um, there's, a, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament that you may have heard of. It's called the Septuagint. And the, the uh, Jewish people of Jesus' day uh, translated the, uh, the Old Testament into Greek so that they could read it because it was more, uh, more common language for some of them than Hebrew. And the Septuagint and as well the New Testament when it refers to Rahab uses a particular Greek word that I think all of you would be familiar with uh, to describe Rahab. It uses the Greek word porne. Now you tell me, does, is porne more likely mean innkeeper or prostitute? Okay. Basically, there's just no way. She was a prostitute, okay? Yes, she kept an inn, perhaps, but the idea of seeing her as an innkeeper as opposed to a prostitute is really problematic. Clearly, this woman, you know, did what prostitutes normally do. So what are the two Jewish guys doing hanging out at her house? Put yourself in their shoes. They're crossing over the Jordan River. They're going into enemy territory, and they don't want to be detected. They've got to check out a city, and this city has a wall all the way around it, and they look not exactly like the locals. You know, maybe they're disguised somewhat, but they don't look exactly like the locals. So what are they going to do? Where are they going to go? Where are they going to hide? You know, the house of a prostitute isn't such a bad choice because there's going to be men coming and going at all times of day and night. So they figure, hey, we can go in there, no one's going to see us, and we'll remain undetected. Plus, her house is actually on the city wall, so they can look out over the city, get a good vantage point, and if they have to escape, they're, they're right near the edge, and they can get out pretty quickly. Unfortunately, verse 2, someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. They'd been detected. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk and the, as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Actually, she had hidden them and taken them up to the roof and had hidden them beneath bundles of flax that she had laid out. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. Okay, so you're Rahab. Think about this for a minute. These guys come. You've somehow figured out, uh, maybe by their accents, maybe by talking to them, that, that, that they are Israelite spies. They are from your enemy. What are you gonna do when the king's men come and say, bring them out? The safest thing to do is to say, yeah, they're upstairs, okay? Because if she lies, which she did, if she hides these guys, which she did, and the king finds out, that's it, it's over. She's dead, treason, you're dead, you know? And, and, and as a prostitute, there's absolutely no mercy is gonna be shown to her. And yet, yet she hides these guys. I mean, Why? Why would a Canaanite hide a couple of Israelites? Why would she hide the, the, the spies 
from her enemy who are coming to check out the land in order to essentially destroy it and take it over. I mean, why would she do this? The answer, I think, is found in the, in the following verses. Verse 8, Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. For we've heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and of the earth below. So why did, why did Rahab hide them? Because she trusted God. I mean, she was theoretically at least, as a Canaanite, a follower of a god named Baal and a whole bunch of other lesser gods. And Baal is supposed to be, you know, the key god of the Canaanites. Yet she, using the Hebrew word for God, Yahweh, says, I know that your God is the one true God and my people are terrified of him because we saw what happened when you crossed the Red Sea and we saw what you did to Sihon and Og, these two Amorite kings. Now, just, just parenthetically, again, about 40 years ago, the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea. God had parted it and some of you have seen that, say, you know, in the, in the Prince of Egypt movie. You know, God had parted the Red Sea and, uh, and the Israelites had gone across. And then we don't know exactly when the battle with the Amorites was, but let's just say it was, you know, say 20 years or so before that. And they had defeated the Amorites. And so the word had gotten to the people of Jericho and they're terrified. And Rahab says, yeah, all of our people are afraid and so what am I going to I trust your God because he's the powerful one. He's the God of the universe. And so that's why Rahab hid the spies. So from, from her perspective, she says, okay, my choice is to trust my gods and my king or your God. And your God is the one that defeated all these other people. So I'm going with the winner. I'm going with the one that I know is the one true God. And that's why she hid the spies because she had faith. And her faith led to action. She didn't just sort of say, yeah, I know that your God is, is, is uh, you know, the most powerful one, which, in fact, many of the other Canaanites recognized that, and all they did was sit there and, and, and shake in their boots. But Rahab said, I'm going to act on it. So she hid the spies and then went on. And, and in the next few verses, which we, won't, which we won't read, Rahab then says, hey, when you come back and take over this land, I've protected you. I want you to protect me. And I know you're going to come. I know you're going to destroy this place, but please protect me and protect my family as well. My brothers and my sisters, my parents, you know, my extended family, would you protect all of us? And the spies said, yeah. And they worked out a way that would be clear so they could find her house again and protect her when they came back. And then if we take a look down in uh, verse 15, uh, the, the writer says, then since Rahab's house was built into the town wall, she let them down by a rope through the window Escape to the hill country, she told them. Hide there for three days from the men searching for you. Then when they've returned, you can go your way. So her house is built into the city wall. She just happens to have a rope that's long enough to let them down. Probably she had used it before some, for some other, you know, customers to let them down. And, it, you know, it was a regular thing, that, you know, kind of like one of those escape ladders that you have, you know, maybe in your house for your kids or something. And, uh, you know, she had that there. She led them down through the, through, the, uh, through the hill, through the hill, through the wall, and uh, they went up into the hill country and hid. 
And down in verse 22, so it says, the spies went up to the hill country, stayed there three days. The men who were chasing them searched everywhere along the road, but they finally returned without success. Then the two spies came down from the hill country, crossed the Jordan River, and reported to Joshua all that had happened to them. The Lord has given us the whole land, they said, for all the people in the land are terrified of us. The Lord has given us the whole land for all the people of the land are terrified of us. How did they know that? Because Rahab had told them. I mean, think about this. In a war situation, you don't want your enemies to know that you're afraid. You want them to think that you're more confident than you really are. And yet Rahab said, hey, you should have no trouble because we're terrified of you. She gave them the piece of information that they needed to have in order to gain even more confidence that they would be able to go in and take over the land. And so the spies come back and say, Joshua, it's all set. We can go in. And just think about the irony of this situation. 40 years before they had been poised ready to go into the land and they were too afraid to do it 40 years later they're poised ready to go into the land and the Canaanites are too afraid to defend their land and so that Joshua was then able to take that information and say hey we're ready to go and that's what ended up happening. They went into the land and they took it over. And the story of what happened is recorded in Joshua chapter 6. We don't have time to cover it this morning, but let me encourage you. Just go home, grab a Bible, take you five minutes, two or three minutes actually really, to just read the story. And it's just pretty incredible of what God did, of how he brought the walls down so that the people were able to go in unimpeded and take over uh, the city of Jericho. But I do want us to take a look at a couple of verses in chapter 6 so we can see what ended up happening to Rahab. Chapter 6, verse 22. Meanwhile, Joshua said to the two spies, keep your promise. Go to the prostitute's house and bring her out along with all of her family. The men who had been spies went in, brought out Rahab, her father, mother, brothers, and all the other relatives who were with her. They moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. Then the Israelites burned the town and everything in it. Only the things made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron were kept for the treasury of the Lord's house. And so Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. So Rahab's faith was rewarded. The spies, Joshua, God spared her and her family, and here we are 3,400 years later talking about her as a hero of faith. And God blessed her because she trusted in him and acted on that faith that she had in him. So why would we call Rahab a hero in that kind of a situation? I mean, she's a prostitute, she's a liar, you know, she's not a fine, upstanding citizen. How is it that we can call her a hero? And I think the answer is that she had a faith in God that led to action. And that action led to Israel's victory over, over their enemies. She didn't just simply believe in God sort of with this intellectual, yeah, I know there's this God of Israel out there. I know he's powerful. I know that he did all these things and leave it at that. She believed in God, she trusted in him, and she chose to act on it. And that's why she's a hero of faith. I mean, think about Moses. He trusted God and he led the people out 
of Egypt. You think about Gideon. He trusted in God and he led the people into battle. You think about Hannah. She trusted God and she acted. Samuel, he trusted God and he went and told Saul what Saul had been doing, the king, what the king had been doing wrong. And in the same way, Rahab acted on her faith. It's a pretty simple faith. It's not a very complicated one. She looks and she says, these weaker gods over here and these weak kings or the strong God over here, which one am I going to do? I'm going to trust in the powerful God. And that's what she did. And that's basic faith. It's looking at God and saying, you are who you say you are. You can do what you say you're going to do. So I'm going to align myself with you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to live like it. And that's what Rahab did. Hebrews uh, is a book in the New Testament. It was written by an unknown author, and it was written to uh, Jewish Christians, Jews who were followers of Jesus. It was written to them to talk to them about their faith in God. And in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, the writer actually goes through a list of, I don't know, about a dozen or so different men and women of faith. And he lists them and he talks a little bit about each of them and what they had done that would uh, cause them to be held up as heroes of faith. And Rahab shows up in this list in verse 31. And the writer puts it this way. He says, It was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So God looks at her and says, Yeah, you're a prostitute, but you know what? You're trusting in me, and you've showed it by your actions. And so he blesses her, and he, and he blesses her richly, and we're still talking about it uh, even today. But I'm not sure that that's, that answers all the questions we have because she's still a prostitute, you know, or she was at least at the time. How, you know, how is it that God can approve of that? Does God really approve of prostitution? Is he just kind of looking the other way and ignoring her, her disobedience, the way in which she's acting? Is he approving of it? What's going on here? I think the Bible makes it very clear that God doesn't approve of prostitution. He doesn't approve of lying. He doesn't approve of murder. He doesn't approve of, and you name it, there's a whole list of things uh, that are wrong in God's eyes. Um, God wasn't pleased with Rahab's uh, profession. He wasn't pleased with the fact that, he's a, that she was a prostitute. But God is a God of grace, and God is a God of love, and God is a God of forgiveness. And, and like the song that, that Julie was singing, yeah, he knows my shame, but he loves me just the same. He still calls me beautiful. And I think God looked at Rahab and he looked beyond the things that she was doing that were, that were not pleasing to him. And he looked into her heart and he saw someone who was looking to him and who was trusting him. And he looked and he said, okay, I love you and I'm gonna work in you to clean you up, to make you more like the person that I want you to be. It's not that Rahab had to to clean up her act before she could come to God. God says, no. He says, you come to me and I will clean up your act. You know, he says, trust me, trust me and I'm gonna work in you. Whether our faith is is small, whether it's tiny, uh, like some of the people that we read about in the Bible, Gideon, he had questions, he had doubts, he, has, he had concerns. Yet he came to God and he prayed and God rewarded him for that. Or whether it's a stronger faith, you know, like someone like Samuel had. Okay, either way, whether it's a prostitute like Rahab or someone like Moses, who you don't see too many flaws in Moses, God still loves us, God still wants to work in us. Some of us can identify with Rahab, you know, we... we 
we, we have feelings of guilt and, and of shame and, and you know, maybe you came to church this morning and it's the first time that you've set foot in a church and you heard that this was a place where you're not going to feel condemned. And that's true because we're not here to condemn people. And God's focus is not condemning people, it's loving people, it's forgiving people, it's working in our lives to make us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. And that's what he was doing with Rahab. He cared about her. Or maybe you're, you're someone who says, you know, I can't relate to Rahab. You know, I just haven't done those sorts of things. Maybe I haven't committed, you know, that kind of wrong. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty good upstanding citizen. You know, on the scale of sort of nurses to, um, you know, a political lobbyists, I'm pretty close to the nurse level. I might even put myself above some of you clergy, you know, that I've seen on TV and, you know, that sort of thing. Okay, but you know, each of us have, has done things that are wrong. We may not be Rahab, but we're not perfect either. And yet God looks at us and he says, I love you and I want you to love me and I want you to follow me and I want you to trust me. And that's what we need to do. We need to trust him. We need to turn to him. And as we do, he'll bless us because he's a God of grace. He's a God who looks at us with love and forgiveness. About 30 years after uh, Jesus died, a guy named Matthew, who was a follower of Jesus, wrote a biography and, uh, of Jesus. And we know it as the Gospel of Matthew. Take about an hour or so to read. It's pretty short. And uh, it tells us about the life of Jesus from his perspective as a follower of Christ. And Matthew was, was one of uh, Jesus' closer friends uh, during Jesus' life on the earth. And Matthew starts off his biography, as many of the biographies of that day started off, with a genealogy, with a list of the ancestors of Jesus. And he's got in that list, it's a selective list, he doesn't include every possible ancestor there, it's, but it's, it's uh, fairly comprehensive, goes all the way back to Abraham, who was uh, before Moses. And in that list, there are about, I don't know, 30, 35 different people who are listed in there. What's interesting is, like all of the genealogies that, that day, it's very male-oriented. You know, it's so-and-so was the father of so-and-so who was the father of so-and-so who was, you know, and it goes on and on and on, and it's father after father after father after father. There are five women who are mentioned, five wives who are mentioned there, and one of those five is Rahab. What in the world is Rahab doing in the genealogy of Jesus? Why, why would, first of all, God allow it to happen that Jesus is, is a descendant of a Canaanite prostitute? And then secondly, why would he advertise that fact? You know, and as I started to think about this over the last couple of weeks, my first thought was, you know, God has put her in there in spite of the fact that she's a prostitute, in spite of the fact that... Her profession is, is something that he displeased of. And man, that's a pretty awesome God, you know, that he would overlook that, that fault of hers and uh, that because of her faith, he would put her in there. And I think that's true. Because of her faith, she's included. But the more I thought about it, the more I said, you know, I don't think she's in there in spite of the fact that she's a prostitute. I think that she's in there because she's a prostitute. Because that's the kind of God that we have who says, I don't care if she's a prostitute, I don't care if he is a lobbyist, whether he's a nurse or she's a policeman or, you know, whatever it might be. I'm a God who loves 
all people, who, is, who, who wants to clean people up, who came to rescue people, who came to clean up messes, who identifies himself with all of humanity and who cares whether we're a prostitute or whether we're a clergyman, whether we're a nurse, whether we're a political lobbyist, whether we're a congressman, whatever it may be, God looks at us and says, what I'm concerned about is your heart and I'm even working in your heart to incline it more towards me. And that's the kind of God we have, the God who's just an amazing God who will clean us up in that way. And so for me, as I was thinking about this, I just said, man, what an amazing God. He didn't include Rahab in spite of who she was. He included Rahab because of who she was. And so I say, and I look at that and I say, you know what, no matter how bad I am, and there are times when I do things that, I, you know, I just look and I want to hang my head in shame. You know, I, I, I hurt my family. I do other things that are wrong. And yet God still loves me. God still forgives me. And he wants me to continue to trust him and not run away from him and not be afraid of him. God is in the business of of fixing up broken people, of of cleaning up messy people, of restoring tarnished paintings uh, to their original beauty. God God included Rahab in Jesus' genealogy to remind us that he's a God of love, that he's a God of grace, that he's a God of forgiveness, that he's a God who who blesses us as we trust in him in the same way that Rahab did. And so let me just encourage you, wherever you are on that spectrum, wherever you see yourself on that spectrum, look at God, the God who created you, who made you who you are, who knows what you're like, who knows what I'm like, and who loves us, not really because of who we are, but in spite of the fact of who we are, really because of who he is. He's a God who wants us to turn to him in faith. Let me encourage you to do that. Wherever you are along the way, maybe, maybe you've been a follower of Christ your whole life, just keep following him, keep trusting him, and keep being grateful for all that he's done. Maybe you're new to this whole thing. Maybe this is your first time here at a place like Renaissance, you know, in 30 years or, or, or more. You say, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing. Just continue to, to pursue, to explore, to find out more, like Rahab did. And as you do, as you do that, you'll find out that we have a God who loves us, who's gracious to us, who forgives us, and who wants us to follow him and trust him. Let's pray together. Father, what an awesome and, and, and powerful God you are. Parted the Red Sea, brought the walls of Jericho down, gave the land uh, of Canaan to the Israelites, and you forgave Rahab, and you hold her up as a hero because she trusted in you, because you worked in her life so that she could come to know you and that she could become one of your followers. And, and Father, I thank you that we have that privilege as well. Thank you for the grace that you've given us, for the forgiveness that you've given us, and for the love that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. And I pray for each of us, Father, that we would grow, even this morning, just one step closer to you as we see how you treated treated Rahab, as we think about how you treat us. I pray that our love for you would grow, our trust in you would grow, and that you would work in our hearts to make us more like yourself. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.